The following podcast includes explicit language, including, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of September 21st, 2020. On this week's show, we'll talk about the Lakers' buzzer-beating win against the Nuggets, the Seahawks' last-second stop against the Patriots, and the abstract concept of whether sports are back. We'll also discuss the return of Big Ten football, reversing an earlier pledge to cancel the fall season. And finally, Slate's Jim Newell will be with us to discuss the conquering weirdo of pro golf, 2020 U.S. Open champion Bryson DeChambeau. I am the author of The Queen, host of Slow Burn, season four. I'm in Washington, D.C. Also in Washington, D.C., author of the book's Word Freak and a few seconds of Panic Sir, Stefan Fatsis. Congrats on getting knighted by me. Thank you. Hey, Stefan. I think it was a long time coming. It was. Yeah. What's going to be your first official act? To abandon the monarchy, move to Vancouver. Wow. It's a real lesson for us all. Abdicating. Abdicate. That was the word I was looking for. I'm abdicating my throne. For the podcast you love. With us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3, Lord Joel Anderson. How do you feel about the title that I've given you, Joel? I feel pretty good. I've always thought of myself as a lord. I think lord is better than sir. They give those sirs out to like anybody. <laughs> do you have to earn a lord title? You gotta earn. You gotta earn your lordship. Yeah. I think. Nobody who's called lord uh, gets, you know, just gets it. You have to earn. That's <laughs> certainly a title that you have to earn, I'd imagine. The Big Ten has the lords division and the legends division, I think. <laughs> Joel, don't forget that we're doing this live slow burn thing on Tuesday. Oh, God, I did forget. So, okay. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's Tuesday. September 22nd. That is this Tuesday, if you're listening to this this week. It's the first ever conversation between all four Slow Burn hosts, me and Joel and Leon Nafak and Noreen Malone, who's hosting the upcoming season five. It's at 8 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday, and you can find out how to watch at slate.com slash live. It's literally the first time. I've never talked to Leon or Noreen before, so... (laughs) (laughs) Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. Sunday night, NBA's Orlando bubble, a quote-unquote home game for the Los Angeles Lakers. Lakers are down by one. Nuggets 103, Lakers 102. 2.1 seconds to go. TNT's Brian Anderson on the call. Foul to give. Jokic trying to disrupt Rondo. He puts it in. Here's Davis. 4-3 in the win. Oh, it's good! Anthony Davis has won it for the Lakers! little more than an hour later, Seattle, Seahawks 35, Patriots 30, three seconds to go. Pats at the Seattle one-yard line, little Super Bowl reversal. Cam Newton awaiting the snap. Here we go. Cam is going to take it himself, and he doesn't get in. And the Seahawks are going to win the game. I'm going to give Al Michaels like uh, a half Brian Anderson there in terms of uh, energy and enthusiasm. Oh, my Al God. Michaels, is, he's seen it all. The man, the man has seen yeah, it all. He's true. he's hard to impress, but 
four really good teams. Two games came down to the final play. Uh, one win for the offense, one for the defense. When we were waiting for sports to come back, this is what we were waiting for, these kinds of games. Um, but it's tough not to think, or it was tough for me not to think, about what was missing when I was watching those games on Sunday. The Seahawks won in their home stadium, known as one of the loudest in the NFL, in front of no home fans. The Lakers won a notional home game in which the home court amenities mostly consisted of digitally superimposed logos on the court. So, Joel, when you see those plays and hear those highlights, are you thinking about more what's there and what we saw and what we heard or what isn't there? So it's to the credit of those sports leagues that I'm thinking, what the hell was Mason Plumley doing? And what the hell was Josh McDaniels doing? To clarify, Mason Plumley lost Anthony Davis uh, on that inbounds play that freed him up for that open three-pointer. And Josh McDaniels... There was McDaniels, a screen involved. Uh, I mean, he ran right into the back of LeBron. Like, he like, like he stopped there. And it, it, it was confusing. Somebody should get him to... Should ask him what actually happened there. And, I mean, Josh McDaniels, whatever, man. He ran a fullback dive with Cam. Uh, so, whatever. But that's the point. I have to admit, the games have been really good. And in many ways, I've just grown accustomed to these fanless games. And I, I don't know, maybe that's just because we've been acculturated to the idea of watching games without very many fans in the background for years. You know, like most games that we watch are not, you know, these big standing room only affairs around the country. They're games that very often, you know, uh, three quarters full, half full sometimes. And so, you know, we've adapted to the idea that these games are not going to have fans. I have a particular way of watching the NFL anyway. I mean, I watched Red Zone uh, and then tune in if a game is interesting late. And so, you know, this has not been that disturbing for me. And I assume it probably is the same for a lot of other people. Is that is that been true for you too, Stefan? Yeah, it of course feels weird. And I tend to sort of try to get lost in the moment, like at that end of that game. And I'm still, though, conscious of the surroundings and not in a terrible way either. I'm still like fixated every time the NBA cuts to that cool floor level shot with the little roadrunner camera tracking the sideline. I love that. And that's what I start thinking about. And you mentioned the home court advantage, Josh, every time they start playing defense, when the home team is on defense, I find that amusing and entertaining. So I think that I'm getting to that point where my brain is getting tricked slightly at least with the NBA, into feeling like, hey, this is okay. This is kind of normal. Football still, still seems really weird to me because of the the emptiness of the stadiums and the the few games where they've allowed fans in, stupidly or probably stupidly. That just looks really, you know, weird, having a sixth or a tenth of the, the, the capacity in the stadium. So that just reminds me that it's weird. And I don't know whether I want to be reminded that this is all weird and we shouldn't be doing it, necessarily or whether that's okay the nba stuff you know there was a moment in that lakers nuggets game where i hadn't thought about this before but they mentioned when alex caruso was trying to save a ball on the sideline and just like kind of went way off the court and, and leaped and, and tried to throw it in that that wouldn't have been possible in an arena with courtside yeah. seats Mm -hmm. And, you know, the rail cam, that wouldn't be possible in arena with mm -hmm. courtside seats. And so the absence of fans isn't all bad from a viewing perspective or even from like an, an on-court play perspective. I mean, that's like a pretty narrow 
circumstance, but like there definitely would have been more of a risk of injury or of beer spilling in the front row. If someone's laptop might have gotten broken from the media, all of these things. But I guess I was just more specifically wondering, because we had asked Troy Daniels about this when we had him on in the early days of the NBA bubble, because he had made, he's on the Nuggets. He had made a game winning shot in the playoffs when he was on the Rockets. And just like, what would it feel like to have one of these indelible moments? We saw it with Luka Doncic earlier in the playoffs when he made that that buzzer beater. We saw it here with Anthony Davis. And like Brian Anderson, the announcer, is like trying to bring the level of energy that we expect. Um, but there's just that little kind of like buzz of the fake crowd noise. And you heard, heard it in the Seahawks clip as well. And I think it sounds the fakest in those moments when, you know, you would see like when Kawhi made that shot um, in, in the playoffs last year, the bouncing shot where they have the cam the camera at like the top of the arena and you see everybody in the stands like stand up and leap up at the same time. Like it feels the, you you can't do like a CGI artificial crowd noise that sounds natural in one of these moments. And so you almost kind of wish that they didn't have any at all, rather than reminding you of the un- unreality of it. So when that the moment when Anthony Davis hit that three last night, if you watch games the way that I watch them, with like my computer open, looking at Twitter, and then, you know, eyes darting back and forth between the laptop and TV screen, it doesn't seem quite is uh, the, the fan noise and the fan reaction shot isn't quite as noticeable to me because I'm looking at people on Twitter go, wow, oh, AD, yeah. you know, all that stuff. But I, I was watching to- on DVR, so I had uh, I had stripped out all of that because I, I didn't want to know what had happened in the game. So I wasn't, oh. I had like, you know, had the phone, had the phone off, had yeah. the computer off. And so I'm totally relying on right. the TV to like be my companion for the game. Like I was watching with no one either in person or virtually. Yeah. See that definitely could, I could totally see how that would affect the viewing experience. But, you know, we talked about this several times about the absence of home court advantage. And I think to me, it most comes up when you're building the tension for the games, like when the state, when they're talking about the stakes and, you know, you're getting ready to start the game. And it's like, all right, you know, Den- home court switches to Denver and Denver's down 0-2. How are they going to, you know, get back into the series as they go to whatever the hell their home arena is? And like hearing that sort of stuff. Or when you grow up hearing, you know, we're live from the forum in Inglewood. You know, that that sort of stuff is what makes playoff games playoff games to me. And we don't have any of that buildup. It's just the game for better or worse. Even at this point in the playoffs, we're still trying to figure out like how we feel about it and how much of it's it's affected us. But I think for the most part, it's to the credit of the NBA and the players that the games have mostly taken center stage so far. Stefan, in the conference semis, home team went 5-19 and 19 in the NBA. And in the Raptors-Celtics series, the quote-unquote home team lost every game, which had never happened before mm-hmm. um, in an NBA playoff series. Yeah, so it turns out that the defense sounds are not enough <laughs> to rally a team. I always thought they were, but yeah, it's good to good good to have your uh, errors corrected. I think in baseball, it's been about what it normally is in terms of home field advantage, and I don't think home field advantage is as strong in baseball. It's like fifty five or fifty six percent or something like that. NFL small sample size so far. I haven't looked at the numbers. Josh, have you? Stefan, um, in the NBA conference semifinals, home teams went five and nineteen, which is a winning percentage of twenty-one percent. And in the Raptors Celtics series, the quote unquote 
home team lost every game, which had never happened before in the NBA playoffs. Well, we probably need our friend John Wertheim, who had a chapter about this in a book that he wrote a few years ago, uh, to talk about the reality of home field advantage or home court advantage. And I think what we're seeing is that in big stadiums, things are playing out the way they normally do. In baseball, I think it's about the same, 55 or 56%, somewhere around there in terms of the home team's winning percentage. Um, in football, it sounds like the first couple weeks have been also on level in terms of home team. I mean, very, very early days, it's 18 and 13 home teams are, which is 58%, which is like close to historical norms, but we don't know, like that doesn't take into account the quality of the, the matchups matchups. or who is expected to win, but like it's it's nothing like crazy going on clearly. Right. But in basketball, it is crazy, which would indicate again, small sample size that home court does matter a lot in a, tight, crowded arena. And uh, I haven't looked at the numbers for hockey, but I imagine that they're probably also sort of tend to to level things out or, or flip things and have the home ice advantage matter less than it normally would. But what I've really enjoyed is just watching the players play and care during the 48 minutes that they're on the court. Like that explosion of 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 excitement after AD hit the three was no different than it would have been in an arena. And in some ways, it allowed us to focus more on them and their reactions than we would have if a producer was cutting between fans and the court and, you know, some, you know, someone going crazy in the stands. And I like that part of it. I think you know, that we're distilling this back to what matters for the athletes. And while it, we've talked about how this is not easy for them in all of these down hours in the bubble, um, when they're on the court, they seem to be caring and watching that care has been really fun for me. I mean, the only fans, or, or at least the only fans we're seeing in these NBA playoff games, Joel, are the players on the bench. So right. J.R. Smith is like playing the role of yeah. like 12th man and surrogate fan. Who was the guy that got run over though after the the scrum? Did you notice that? Some oh, the got, Anthony Davis chest bumped into him. Yeah, and, and, and knocked he him went down. sprawling. Yeah, and who then was he tried that? to like crawl <laughs> into the scrum after he got knocked down? An anonymous decleated Laker. Right, it wasn't a player. I, you know, I agree, man. I think that it has been sort of joyful to watch them play. But I, and to be a Debbie Downer here for just a second, we haven't heard anything about the stuff that led them to go on strike a couple weeks ago, like since then, right? Like that stuff is all in the rear view. And that was always the concern from from players, you know, like Kyrie or whatever, that once these games got started, that people would stop talking about these important social and racial justice issues. And there are we're not a lot even of PSAs about, about voting. There are, yeah, which is not, which I, would I, which I always like to remind people that that is not quite social and racial justice. It's an element of it. But the, what this all is about was about racialized police abuse. That's how it started. We haven't heard anything about that. But, I mean, that's neither here nor there. We're not talking about it. We're talking about the games now, which is fine. The games have been great. And that's, I mean, you know, this has probably gone about as well for the NBA as they could have expected. And also, I mean, they get the LA Lakers. They get LeBron, they get the Lakers going towards the final. Like, that is ideal. And I also don't have to deal with the Milwaukee Bucks in that small market, right? Like, that's a, you know, they don't have to worry about them mucking things up. I guess the question, Joel, is, you know, you mentioned the the messages are less present now, but 
actually the message, uh, the Black Lives Matter message is still very prominent. It's on the court. The messages on the jerseys are still there. And, and I, but I, I still think you're right. And so I guess the question is, has that actually become something that we just get used to and we see as part of the like furniture of these games? And if we want this message to resonate more or to spark something new, that means the be- the messages on the jerseys need to be different or on the court need to be different because it's it's all just part of the you know what we've come to expect at this point what we've become acculturated to well that's an interesting question i think looking forward look the nba is going to restart in a couple of months mm-hmm. are these messages going to still be on the court are they going to switch this up is this going to become a part of the fabric of sports going forward or i think perilously will we look at this as a window where sports decided to join a cultural conversation and then when it's convenient to exit it we're not in these exigent circumstances anymore we're out of these bubbles fans are back in the stands that we're going to move on and go back to being a commercial based entity i guess my point was that i don't exercise very much but isn't it like a core tenet of exercising that you want to like switch things up so your body doesn't get used to mm-hmm. like doing the same exercises over and over again. So even if if it is the same message, don't you want to kind of deliver it in a different way using a different medium, even different visuals or, or design just to get people to notice again? Yeah, I mean, it's tough, right? Because you do want it to become, you know, sort of part of the landscape that people agree that Black Lives Matter is a viable political force in our country and that, you know, it's, it's something to be reckoned with, right? But yeah, I mean, at this point, who's to say, like, what's the best, the next best way to grab people's attention? But, you know, I, again, I'm torn on that anyway, because I'm like, well, I don't know if basketball players should have to do that. I don't know if that, that should be the work of the NBA. And we're, we're, li- we're living through new, fresh horrors every day in this country, right? Like, there's all sorts of, like, you know, pot- turmoil and potential turmoil uh, on the horizon. So it could be that our attention... Are, are diverted because of that stuff too and basketball for the people that just want to stick to sports like it is providing us some sort of solace in a, in a really difficult time um but yeah i don't know what i don't know what the next best thing to do is and stefan man that's if the season starts in a couple months after this i mean i imagine they'll have to come back to the bubble right like what right. <laughs> it's just this nothing is going to change in terms of um you know where we're going to be in terms of dealing with this pandemic in a couple of months so yeah, I mean, I guess if they're going to do something different, it's just going to have to be different in that bubble. We didn't even talk about whether Mason Plumley screwed up on that screen or whether oh, he there screwed was something up. else going on there and whether Cam Newton screwed up or that was just a bad play call. A couple he of good pieces up. in uh, the new defector sort of analyzing those plays in micro, in, uh, in micro, which was what I was thinking about after those those games. You think he screwed up entirely? Yeah, what did they say about that, that play call for Cam then? Uh, the play call for Cam that Seattle read it and and did a good job stopping it basically. And that there mm. was a failure on the, on the right side of the line and cam was left with no options. And I think cam said afterward that, yeah, he probably should have bounced to the outside um, and tried to score that way. It looked sports. like a terrible play, but sports sports. Right. And same with Plumley. I mean, there's, there's probably some, you know, Jokic said afterward, little bit miscommunication, which is putting it mildly. Um, (laughs) But there's probably some world in which Mason Plumlee rightly thought that the correct thing to do was to protect against LeBron peeling off and going toward the basket. But 
sure didn't look like it after watching it six times. Well, Rondo said, because Rondo had asked into the game to throw the inbounds pass, which ended up being the right move for the Lakers. But he said, first look was to go to Caldwell Pope on the back cut. That wasn't open. Next look was to look to Danny Green on the back cut. That wasn't open, too. Then I looked to LeBron, and he wasn't moving. And then I threw it to Anthony Davis. So I was like, wait, what? Wait. <laughs> That's, because if, if Davis misses that shot, then the story of the game is LeBron had an absolutely putrid fourth quarter, fourth quarter mm-hmm. and everything down the stretch. And that's like the, the power and the, the beauty of having an amazing teammate like that is that it can yep. um, erase the mistakes that are inevitable in a, a high level game like that one. But like you, you focus on the, the Mason Plumley aspect, the, like LeBron, LeBron's behavior on that last play was, was slightly bizarre as well. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, man. I just, like have you, just watch Mason Plumlee is keeping up with Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis curls behind the line. Mason Plumlee stops at Bron, who is not moving. Like I mean, I guess yeah. maybe he was surprised by what LeBron did, but I just I don't know. <laughs> the I, classic, the classic, don't move play. It, I guess they work. only had Mason Plumlee out there for his athleticism, not necessarily his headiness. <laughs> yeah, fair play. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. We're now a few days away from the real start of college football when the SEC finally returns to action over the weekend. The SEC, which hasn't yet played a game and won't play against any non-conference opponents this fall, has six of the nation's top 10 ranked teams, according to the most recent AP poll. And I'm inclined to believe it. In the SEC's absence, college football has mostly slogged through its first couple of weeks in the pandemic. There's been a lot of boring mismatches, more Texas State and Austin P football than I've ever wanted to see on TV, and a handful of games postponed because of campus outbreaks. And seeing all of that mess, the Big Ten has decided it wants back in the game. Last week, the conference reversed course and announced that it would start its college football season the weekend of October 24th. That decision comes about a month after the league voted to indefinitely postpone its season. And it appears the Pac-12 wants some too and is close to reconsidering its earlier decision to delay the season until the spring. So, Josh, are you surprised that the Big Ten and maybe the Pac-12 are changing their minds about playing this fall? I actually am surprised, but I think it's probably more a failure of imagination on my part to think about how this was going to play out. Um, Because if we look back on when the decision was made, the Big Ten and Pac-12 clearly thought they were being leaders and legends and that other conferences were going to follow them, right? And then when that didn't happen, then you had a couple of of cascading effects there. You had players and fans saying, this is unfair, we deserve to play. If Notre Dame is playing, if everybody else is playing, then why can't we play too? You had pressure on the schools, you know, that we're, we're missing all of this revenue and everybody else is getting it. And again, there's the sense of unfairness and, and lack of equilibrium there. But the fact that the statements about why they weren't going to play were so focused on medical reasons and that they were supposedly led by health and safety officials who were focused on 
COVID-related heart issues and the the potential consequences there. I think it was partly sincere health-related concern. Partly it seemed to me like potential concern about liabilities if there are catastrophic health consequences from from coming back to play. And, And so because of that, it just seemed like a hard thing to walk back from. If you're saying we are incredibly concerned about health and safety, and then we're still in a pandemic, and then you say, actually, never mind, we're going to play anyway. And the argument, you know, as articulated very well by our colleague Ben Mathis Lilly in Slate for this not being a totally um, bankrupt and indefensible decision is that the thing that's changed is the availability of rapid testing. And they have these protocols in place where all the players are going to get rapid tested before every game in practice. And that if there's a positive, then they'll take a PCR test. And if there's a positive, they'll sit out for three weeks. And there are all of these um, contingencies in place. And what Ben says is like, if you're going to play college football, then this is the the plan and the protocol that you would want to have. Like, this is the way to do it safely. But I think, Stefan, I'd, I'd imagine that there are a bunch of holes to be poked here. But I just wanted to lay out that argument and say that like the thing that has changed here um, and the reason that this, if you wanted to make this decision, the thing that you can lean on and, and explain it with is the availability of these tests. Yeah, that's absolutely fair, Josh. And that is the right way for the Big Ten to justify returning to play. But it does elide a lot of related issues, including the long-term unknown consequences of this, this illness, including the obvious contradiction or hypocrisy that you have campuses that are experiencing gigantic outbreaks among students, including Wisconsin of the Big Ten, which has has dormitories that are currently locked down, um, where kids literally can't leave because there there have been uh, a cluster of positive cases. So you're totally free to justify this by saying we're taking every precaution to protect the safety of the players and staff of these teams, but you know, lift the rug and there's a whole lot of dust under there about what interests are you supposed to be serving in college with you? What are these university presidents supposed to be doing to protect their, 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 their campuses? That's the bubble that they should be thinking about. And I think you can make an equally forceful moral argument that playing at all runs counter to the goals of American universities. I mean, schools are having trouble just holding class right now. Like, there's difficulty in having class and keeping people safe in the course of this pandemic right now. And now you're saying, okay, in the middle of all this, we haven't really seen anything change in terms of, like, the material conditions in our country. Like, you know, people are sort of abiding by protocols and social distancing, and some people sort of aren't. And people, you know, still die, you know, their death rates and infection rates are slowing but there's still like a problem. Like we're still <laughs> like things are still dangerous. And so and so they they looked at all that and said, oh, yeah, we want in on that. Like, that's fine. Like, let's do it. And to your point, Stefan, yeah, like what do they know about myocarditis now that makes them less concerned about it 
today. You know what I mean? Like I, that was a part of their reasoning for not having football as recently as, you know, about 40 days ago. And now they're saying, oh, we're just going to like catalog and we're going to, you know, keep track of all the people that may have some sort of symptoms or show some sort of signs of myocarditis. Like well, what does that doesn't do any players any good 15 years from now, right? Like if there are any real long-term health effects. I also find it really interesting that, you know, we're just coming off of NFL weekend where there were like a seemingly high number of injuries. And people are theorizing that we're seeing all these injuries because of the lack of preparation time. I've not heard anybody say that about college football. And I don't know why people have, you know, are not concerned about the potential for players getting hurt or there being an injury risk. And I tend to think it's because nobody tends to specifically care about the players in college football. They care about the games and they care about the schools. But the players are always taking backseat to the larger interests in college football. And like that's the way through which I view the Big Ten and potentially the Pac-12's decisions to return. Because, of course, players want to play. Of course, they want to get back out there. But it's on these leagues, it's on these administrators to figure out safe circumstances to do that. And I'm just not convinced that anybody anywhere in this country, with the exception of the, the sports leagues that are in bubbles, have figured it out in such a way that would make me feel comfortable. I mean, Josh, I think there's a cynical point to be made here, too, in terms of what motivated the Big Ten to return. Michael McCann did a piece for the new website that he's involved in, Sportico, about the business of sports. And there were a couple of lawsuits filed here. And McCann postulated that those lawsuits probably didn't force the Big Ten's hand, but it sure as hell makes their life easier to return to play. They are going to avoid a lot of public scrutiny about communications and decision-making that could have made the league look really bad here. So there are a lot of reasons why the Big Ten decided to do this, and I don't think it's likely that the only ones were that, oh, suddenly it looks like, you know, we can manage this health crisis thing and, and let them play at the same time. We can get more tests, and that's a good thing. I don't really buy that that idea that from from McCann that they were doing this to try to avoid litigation because you know oh, I, I don't but think he doesn't say that they did. He's saying that it certainly makes it easier. You know, whether well, that's coincidence I, I think, or not, like it it certainly does. I don't I don't think these these universities are dumb enough to think that they're hmm. They're, they're, do, they're dodging. Well, they, they must know that they're courting potential litigation by coming back to play. Like, th- this is not a get out of litigation free card coming coming back after you've made all of these pronouncements about how unsafe it was. And then you're basically now um, opening yourself up to both um, criticism in, in public and also potential lawsuits. If, you know, if, if, if it comes, if, if someone gets, gets sick or hurt, or hurt. So, you know, we're, we're going to see in discovery what, all right, what's all the evidence you had to contradict the evidence that you said you had before. Let's, let's see it all. And then we'll, we'll let a uh, court decide. Well, yeah. So aren't they to some degree just crossing their fingers on everything? Yeah. But I think, uh, so Stefan, there's something that you said in, in, in the beginning of the segment about how playing now doesn't serve the interests of, of these universities, the educational purpose or the stated purpose. The, the fundamental issue there, you have, we have to back up one, one level, is that football doesn't serve the interests of, of these institutes of, of higher education. And I think, I don't want to just say that this is useful because I know that there are people um, whose whose lives are going to be upended by by this decision making but it is instructive 
to see, you know, all of the stuff that we that we suspected and that we knew was underpinning these these sports. Um, you know, the emphasis on revenue generation, the hypocrisies around players not being able to make money while while coaches are are millionaires. That stuff has just become so much more stark and obvious, I think, to the world. Just when you see what measures are being taken to get these tests to football players while the grad students who are teaching at Michigan and risking exposure are not being given. The same measures aren't being taken to ensure their safety. And there's just no way to put any kind of pleasant gloss around that. It's just because the football players make money for the school. Like there, I, I don't see any other argument that anyone who has a brain could possibly endorse. And so I, I guess it's nice that that's all kind of out in the the open now. And the, the other thing that I would raise is, you know, the Big Ten schools are never going to never gonna say this because how could they? But the thing that's really, I think, hard to get behind here is that in order for this to work, you need coaches and athletic departments to comply with these rules. And this is the conference that, until very recently, DJ Durkin was the head coach at, at Maryland, um, was reinstated, but then fired after findings that there was a toxic culture at that school, you know, a culture that led, you know, seemingly directly to the death of a player, Jordan McNair, who was having heat-related issues at, at practice. There have been issues like this at um, at other schools in the Big Ten as well, you know, Iowa, et cetera, and so forth. And so why are we to believe that uh, with these stringent protocols where if there's a positive test, it's going to put these schools at an extreme competitive disadvantage if they comply? What is there in the background of these institutions and these coaches to believe that they're going to adhere to these protocols? Yeah, and I mean, you know, I was actually thinking about this as I looked at the Big Ten schedule. You know, to that point, we're seeing the hypocrisy of uh, of all of this sort of exposed and laid bare over the last few weeks. And I was looking at the Big Ten schedule, and I was like, man, when are these kids going to be able to go to class and 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 like do their finals? You know what I mean? Because like the, the the season ends like right before the holidays. Uh, under these circumstances, and it goes right through Thanksgiving, which is you know normal, but like right into when athletes would theoretically be studying for their finals. And I was like, oh, that's right. None of this has anything to do with school. It's all about football. You could argue though, Joel, that remote learning makes it easier to be an athlete. They don't have to go anywhere. They can <laughs> stay in their in their room. They can That's... actually bubble them, and they can still go to college. Don't you mean stay in the facility? Sorry, <laughs> in their pod in the LSU <laughs> locker room that has beds already. Right. And back to your point, Josh. Can your 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 coach at Orgeron? Yeah, my mm. coach exactly. Your coach, yeah, Coach O. Coach O. I serve at his pleasure. He mm-hmm. basically, you know, he sort of. Moving forward with very little understanding about what's going on. Oh, he understands. Oh, you know, this is, yeah, he knows. (laughs) I think that that hopefully they won't catch it again, and hopefully they're not out for games. 
No, he said that all of the team had had COVID and that it's a good thing. thing. It's a good thing because that means they won't get it again. The herd immunity theory, right. That seems like a reasonable, I I don't think it's like a reasonable medical understanding, but it's a reasonable understanding of the only thing that he is yes. actually, you know, qualified to opine on, which is competitive football on-field advantage. Yeah. And that's the only thing that these the, that we should be listening to these guys about. Like, we should be listening to them when they talk about how they are going to deal with this as a competitive issue. And the fact that they are thinking about it as a competitive issue tells you everything <laughs> that you, that need, you to need to know about right. how this is going to play out. Right. Right. So, you know, Orgeron basically also admitted, again, no surprise, that he doesn't pay attention to the news and he just does what he's told. There's a protocol and I'm going to follow it. And, you know, yeah, you're right. And that's an incredibly cynical way to think about all of this, about sports, about football coaches, and it's the absolute right one. And that's how we should be processing this. And if to go back to another point you made earlier and that Ben Mathis Lilly makes in his piece, that if this leads to an acknowledgement of what this is all really about, and maybe it leads to some follow-up on the player rights protest movement that emerged earlier in the summer, then that's a good thing. Will it? I don't know, Joel, do you think it will? I mean, absolutely not. I mean, we've seen in in much more important and larger institutions that hypocrisy is not, the public acknowledgement of hypocrisy will not stop necessarily anybody from being a hypocrite, right? So I can't imagine that now that we know, okay, they don't necessarily care about the player's health in the way that they say that they do. This is about money. This is, you know, fundamentally about generating millions of dollars of revenue for these schools that now that that's all out in the open that they're going to be like, you know what, let's reopen this and see how we can bring the players in and see about if we can get them paid since now that we know that this is mostly a, a, a business transaction, right? I just don't see that happening. In fact, I think that I'm I'm more concerned for the players now because now the exploitation's all out there for us to see and the games are still going to go on. You know what I mean? Like that that's the really worrisome part to me that we know right. we, there is we, there is we, an, an if states. not now when sort of aspect to this. Yeah, yeah and there's no, absolutely. And there's really there's no evidence that this is going to go well. We had a head coach Mike Norvell of Florida State test positive and miss yeah. game. You know, we have we've had at least I don't know what the latest count is, but the last I saw it was 16 games that were canceled in the first three weeks, and that's before the Big Ten and the SEC and the Pac-12 and everyone Stuff else. And Fox lost its only scheduled game yes, this past weekend because yeah. of a postponement. Yeah. yeah, I mean, some teams haven't had enough players <laughs> on their roster to play a game. So there's really no evidence that this is going to go well so far. But actually, isn't the fact that the games are getting postponed a sign of success in some way? Like, it would be worse... If the games were still going on under these these circumstances, like so the I'm not saying, yeah, no. Well, that just doesn't strike me as the as the bet. We can come up with lots of reasons to argue that this isn't working, but to say they're postponing or canceling games because players are testing positive, that doesn't seem like a, a bad thing. Well, it's showing that the protocols that they said that they had don't work. Right. Like, I mean, at a minimum, we know that they're, they're supposed to be on campus. Like one of the arguments for coming back to playing was, well, they'll be safer on campus than they are anywhere else because we'll have them in this protocol or whatever. Yeah. And we see that that's all bullshit. Right. Right. All right. We're in agreement. Great place to end. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, this is a big weekend for a not great thing, NFL injuries. And there's been speculation, as just mentioned by Joel, about whether that's because of the uh, unusual circumstances of the season. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about just our general feelings about injuries and football. If you want to hear our conversation about that and you uh, will want to hear it, it'll be good. You have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year and you can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Until last year, Bryson DeChambeau was mostly known as the quirky and annoying golfer who studied physics, played slow, talked too much, putted weird, and signed his autograph backwards with his non-dominant hand. Now he's the guy who bulked up to an un-golf-like 240 pounds of rippling humanity. (laughs) So it was amusing, if not intentional, when, as DeChambeau walked up the 18th fairway to complete a six-stroke win in the U.S. Open on Sunday, NBC analyst Paul Azinger said... This is validation on steroids for Bryson. Azinger later walked back his comment in a text to a reporter. If anyone was thinking I was implying that Bryson was on steroids, they completely misinterpreted that. He took a lot of shit and validated everything he's done. If that needs cleaning up, then the world has gone to hell. Slate's Jim Newell covers a part of the world that actually has gone to hell, Congress and politics. He also watches a lot of and occasionally writes about golf. Hi, Jim. Hi. Well, it turns out that when you spend quarantine adding 40 pounds of muscle, people will be suspicious. Uh, DeChambeau seems like the kind of guy that people roll their eyes about a lot, but he's also single-minded and weird enough that he doesn't seem to care. And he won the U.S. Open. This all seems good for golf, I think. I think if you can't have a dominating player to root for with Tiger and Phil in decline or, you know, Rory kind of treading water or Jordan Spieth kind of backsliding, then it doesn't hurt to have a villain. Uh, And that's kind of what Bryson has become to a lot of people. He can be grading personally. He got mad at the press a couple of times this summer when they didn't show him at his at his most positive light. And he said this, you know, couldn't you show us when it's better for our brand? He tried to get a generous ruling earlier this this summer by pretending that he was in danger from fire ants and that he needed to move his ball. So there's a lot of things that he's kind of built some bad will for over over time. I think his game, even though it's incredible right now. In the long run, I do not think his game is good for golf. It's not that he's done anything illegal. In fact, it's really impressive of what he's done, the way he's tried to take advantage of technology to just get 20 yards on the rest of the field. But I don't think it's great for golf in the long run that now the one thing that really matters the most is speed and just building up as much muscle as you can have to have as much speed as you can possibly have. So then there's not really much artistry left in the game. Because I think really when you have people like Tiger Phil, and Grant, they have plenty of power too, or um, Jordan Spieth, or going back a little more Seve Ballesteros, it's really the the artistry and the shot making that I think really makes people love some of these people the most. And here it's just bludgeoning the ball. 
Sounds like uh, what somebody who's not very muscular would say. Well, I mean, that's absolutely true. <laughs> Being so scrawny, I'm obviously just jealous, and that's why I'm saying what I'm saying. You know who the most popular uh, player of uh, some of the, the, the last uh, decades, the modern era of golf, is John Daly. Yeah. People like, people like bludgeoning, Jim. I think people like John Daly because he was also a really fun fat. person. And right? also really fat. I think is the yeah, it was fat too. People to. related to him being fat, so that helped. And he would smoke cigarettes and drink on the golf course, which was a sign of uh, serious health problems, you know. But <laughs> but you know, who can't? What I mean, what else is there to relate to than serious health problems? So so so, Joel, I think we can all just really bask in this story of a man who gained fifty pounds during quarantine. And is, li- and is living his uh, his best life now, and has has used that to uh, um, you know bring him bring himself uh, tremendous glory. Yeah, I mean, I uh, you know, I, I guess what was sort of interesting to me in reading about this was that it reminded me of the Last Dance when Michael Jordan said after one of those early uh, series against the Pistons, he was like, "Well, I decided that maybe I needed to lift weights and." <laughs> Uh, and that's kind of what is shocking to me here, Jim, that, you know, they talk about his workout routine and analytical approach to the game. And I'm like, wait a minute, are, um, a professional golfer is not training like other professional athletes, like just not taking any of the, you know what I mean? Because it would seem to me with so much money at stake, they'd all be availing themselves of all these resources, working out, dietitians. Uh, you know, analysis of their game. Like, uh, are they? Uh, why aren't the rest of them uh, working out and enlisting other people to help them? I don't understand. I mean, I think a lot of them are working out, but it's more about, um, I mean, building some strength and toning. But a lot of players, when they've tried to really just put on mass, you know, like 30, 40 pounds, it hasn't really worked and they've had health problems. Um, mm-hmm. Like Rory a few years ago really put on a lot of mass and it it he had several injuries afterwards and that's why when Bryson did this there was some thinking like oh players have tried this before it's it's not really going to work one he's going to lose his touch two he's going to have more injuries i mean that could still happen down the line but he's really the first person who's gone this path of let me become you know a linebacker and see you know and i'll just bludgeon it to death and then i can get past everyone and not really face the negative consequences of that so far so i mean that's still an open question i mean one if his body will break down just because of all the, the work he has to do to keep this weight on i mean also the fact that he's eating like five eggs and protein shakes and like 10 pieces of bacon every morning like <laughs> you know that doesn't really sound like a sustainable plan um but i mean if he can continue doing this for a few more years in his prime, then, I mean, that's the way everyone's going to be taught going forward. And you're just going to have it getting longer and longer. Well, this this completely reminds me of baseball pre-steroids, pre-weights, when the the conventional wisdom was, oh, it'll restrict your, your range of motion if you have muscles, and it'll actually slow down your swing, and it's a bad thing. And then, you know, in tandem... Baseball players in the 1980s discovered that you could ingest illegal substances and lift shit tons of weight and it will make the ball go farther. And now it's refined to the point where someone like Bryson DeChambeau can go out and put on 40 pounds and we'll assume that he's not doing anything illegal. He says he's not. His trainer Well, says he's there's not. no reason to assume that, but go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm for the sake of argument. <laughs> okay. I'm assuming it. They are tested, right? I mean, but right, exactly. There's no reason to assume anything. Remember um, that uh, that Sports Illustrated story where Ken Caminetti won the MVP and he credited it to eating Snickers bars? Uh-huh. So the thing, that, <laughs> the thing that doesn't make sense to me, 
Jim, is like the one thing that we know about DeChambeau is that he will do anything to win, right? Like he'll defy any kind of convention in the game if he thinks that it gives him some kind of advantage. And like all the stuff about, oh, we've been preparing his body for two years to undergo this transformation. That, I mean, we have no evidence that he's on PEDs, um, but he seems, it seems like he wouldn't decline to do anything that he thinks would help him win. No, I mean, he wouldn't. I guess he's always, I mean, he's had this history for people who literally never heard of him before of just trying to devise new ways of doing things that people think are crazy at first. Like when he was in college, he usually golf clubs, the higher the club. So if you go up from like four to five to six to seven irons, the clubs get get a little shorter just so you have a little more control. Bryson invented this idea of having every club be single length. And he still uses that. And people thought that was bizarre, but it still works for him. I think it was in high school, Jim, when it was suggested to him. And he even younger do it. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like tinkered a lot with it over the years. And I think there were some other experiments like he was there's a point where he was talking about doing side saddle putting, which is where you like stand facing the hole and like hit the ball from the side. That didn't really last very long. But he's always coming up with these different advances that people think are kind of crazy. Um, I guess some of them work out and some of them don't. But I mean, as far as I know, when you say he would do anything to win, I what like what are you getting at, Josh? <laughs> what I'm getting at is that you know Ken Caminetti didn't win the MVP because he ate Snickers bars, and so I'm just wondering if like in 20 years from now, if we're going to look back at these stories that say Bryson, you know, won by eating bacon. I mean, is <laughs> and protein shakes. Is this all? Is this all just like a con- collective like fiction that we're that we're buying into. I don't of know. Of course. I don't know. Of course. Of course. Of course. <laughs> I mean, he's clearly a weird dude, Look. Jim. I mean, my favorite quote was from this. There was a, an interview in GQ that he did in which he talked about all kinds of, you know, weird shit. Um, and he says, I mean, my goal is to live to 130 or 140, he said. I mean, is he just sort of crazy? Or is, is this like part of cultivating some sort of, you know, golf anti-hero? I think he's just strange. I know he said something after his Saturday interview where I guess he had, I think it was Saturday, he had had some trouble and, he, you know, they asked him what happened in his round. He said something like, I didn't, one of my governors was not activated or something like bizarre. Like I had no idea what he's talking about. I don't know if what that even means, governors. But he, he's always is throwing out these things. I think part of it is, like he wants to show how smart and ingenious he is. I don't actually like know if he's a brilliant physicist like they talk about him. Like I I wish some interviewers would just ask him some basic physics questions and see if he like can actually answer them. Sort but he does just like asking Trump what uh, the three branches of government are. Yeah, just some yeah basic like, factual in, in the same vein, yeah. So I don't really know why he does these things other than he just is, you know, an irritating person. And the other golfers on tour don't like him because he plays too slow. Yeah. Fans don't like him because why? Or or does he have some sort of constituency? Or or is he just generally hated? I mean, I don't know. I haven't done a poll of, of Where are my Bryson golf heads viewers. at? <laughs> I mean, I know that like like really like heavy golf watchers such as myself do not like him. Like golf Twitter does not like him, finds him kind of irritating. A guy from SMU, go figure. And yeah, and I don't think that uh, like there's no sign that he like drives up ratings or anything either. Why wouldn't he drive up ratings? I mean, he bombs the shit out of the ball. He looks different. He's sort of changing the way 
a professional golfer thinks about golf. And it's kind of indisputable, isn't it, Jim, that if you hit the ball 30 yards farther on your drive, you've got a, 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 more, a more amenable shot into the green. So doesn't some of this just make sense? No, it makes sense. I mean, I don't know why people have to get more excited about that, you know, and it, I don't know, it's just bludging it further. And, but I mean, it makes sense what he's doing because it's not just like hitting it 30 yards further down the fairway or into the rough. And he was into the rough quite a lot, like everyone else's week. But when you have that much speed, you can get your club so quickly through the rough that it's like it's not even there. And I think that's like at winged foot, I think that's where it was even a bigger advantage to him that you can get to the, you know, if a ball is in six inches of rough or whatever, you can just get to the bottom of it and, and not have lose control completely. So it's working. But like when, when you said it was like kind of reminding you of baseball, I think that's something that's happening a little bit in golf in general, where players are less concerned about having a 20 or 30 year career with a healthy swing. And they're more kind of looking at where they can maximize their prime. So it may be something where the more golfer, golfers build themselves, you know, they're, you know, they could get into the late 30s and have health problems and, and really kind of be out of it. Well, isn't Tiger the, the the argument against all of this? I mean, he changed his body and he changed his swing. And right. And he ended up getting hurt a lot. I, right. I think Bryson but, would probably trade, if you could ask him, would you take Tiger's career plus Tiger's health issues? It seems like he would probably sign on to that yeah. deal. Yeah, I think anyone would. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I mean, that could be anything, right? Like any athlete could get hurt for any particular reason it, to, to tie it to you know, weight, you know, weight gain or, you know, changing your body like that could that could happen under any circumstance. Well, right? except so. that Tiger didn't need to do that to get the career he had. He already had that career. Bryson hasn't had that career and he's trying to he reshaped his body to get it. So, Joel, you know, one thing that all this brings up to me is that like with with baseball and the money ball era with like strikeouts, walks and home runs, there was a lot of talk about, um, you know, Jim Newell asked, like, decline in artistry in the game. What about advancing the runner? What about the stolen base? And then in, in, in basketball, exactly. we've, seen, we've seen with the Houston Rockets or the, the DeChambeauist team in the league and, like, <laughs> the least kind of willing to succumb to conventional wisdom or social convention and just are willing to play a, a brand of basketball that is maybe less aesthetically pleasing and that's annoying to a lot of fans, but that they feel gives them a competitive advantage. So this, this to me does not seem unique to golf. And it's actually like a phenomenon that we've seen across uh, a whole bunch of sports. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think the, the comparison to baseball is the correct one. And, and the reason I'm going to say this is, and, and, and I don't want to be irresponsible here, but what I would say is that I think that we probably underestimate the extent to which performance-enhancing drugs is responsible for many of the great athletic performances we see. And I'm reminded of when Roger Clemens came to the Houston Astros. And Roger Clemens pretended that he had invented push-ups, that he was the first person that had ever worked <laughs> out. That I remember, you know, Tom Verducci, this cover story on him, is very credulous. Him, you know, Roger Clemens goes out for a run around the outfield and does all this other shit. And I'm just like... 
dog, everybody is working out. You didn't do, you didn't invent anything. You didn't come up with anything new. Um, and I, I, I can't say that this, you know, you know, you all obviously know a lot more about golf than I do, but I, I can't believe that this, even this approach isn't something that is that unique. There's, is there truly nobody that has ever been like, fuck it, man, I'm just going to hit the ball and it's going to go far and that's going to give me a better chance. Well, Gary Woodland, who won the U.S. Open last year, hits the ball super far. I mean, I think the, the like, if you look at Bryson based on last year, he's basically picked up 20 yards. Mm. I don't think every, anyone has ever jumped 20 yards in one year. So, I mean, it really is just this change is, is more rapid than anything we've seen before. Right, and without apparently sacrificing enough touch to win the U.S. Open by six strokes. Right. I mean, that's the other thing we should say. You know, it's not just that any random person could get that big and just Mm -hmm. win because of speed. I mean, he was an extremely good player before this too. So, you know, you can't just have like a a random guy do it. And here's what the trainer said. We should mention under normal circumstances, you'd say the only way somebody can make those changes is by taking steroids. And I can guarantee you that's not been part of his process. (laughs) Not even a thought in his head. It's just been part of the evolution of him being involved in this program and being able to tolerate the forces that his body has been able to tolerate. And those changes in strength have been amazing. But it's all natural from this end of it. Can I just um, can I just put an eggs a and bacon disclosure here? The guy works with the Denver Broncos. He gave me a massage in two thousand six. Go. How good was it? How good was that massage? The massage, yeah. The Broncos player swore by the guy. A couple of guys on the team did later test positive for PEDs. Well, I was going to say that Broncos team was this. What era was this? Bill Romanowski? No. No. Okay. No Roma. You just told me you're fifty seven, so I'm confused. Jim, as a competitive golfer yourself with an admirably low handicap, you must be looking at all this stuff that Bryson does, and you are obsessive about getting that handicap down. You're you're always talking about yeah. these new clubs that I bought and <laughs> yeah. blah, blah blah blah. You must be looking at this guy and being like, you're like taking notes. You're like, you hate the guy, but you're like, all right, coefficient of restitution, side saddle. You're like, you want to implement this stuff into your own game. Be yeah, honest. no, I, I'm working on my own textbook. I'm just trying to get the <laughs> equations right so that then I can uh, figure out golf. I guess, yeah, just eating like six steaks every night. I guess that's a big part of it. Lots yeah. of potatoes. Uh-huh. Um, Protein shakes. Yeah, whatever. Six, I think like literally six protein shakes again. Like he was like showing today, off his, yeah. he was showing off his protein shakes after the round yesterday, which is another thing that's annoying. Like, I don't need to see it, you know. (laughs) Like, I understand you take a protein shake. Stefan, the thing that you didn't mention is his interest in doing stipple portraits, like from the Wall Street (laughs) Journal. Do you see that? That, like, his parents have some stipple portrait of Ben Hogan? But the thing thing is, Jim, like... I want one of those. He wears that stupid hat, like that Ben that Ben Hogan hat. Which he's been wearing since he was, like, 13 or something. But there's there's some part... You don't wear that hat. Like, there's some part of him that wants to be like kind of connected to the traditions of, of the game and wants to like, it, you know, it, is, is that, is that right? That, that it's not like he's a total iconoclast. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the dude loves golf. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I can't locate what that psychological factor is though. That makes him like, just put in one thing that will irritate people in each interview i like i don't know entirely what it is that he complained about his brand after being shown like hitting a bad shot or getting angry like shows that he's obviously very uh careful in the way he um promotes himself so obviously he's trying to do something you know when he's putting in all these strange gimmicks and everything he says i just don't know entirely what it is all right jim newell 
I want to leave you with the fact that Bryson DeChambeau has physics formulas stamped on his branded irons now. So I think you should probably do that too. I don't know what formulas you would come up with. Maybe some polling results. Yeah, maybe some some sampling methods or something yeah, on my irons. That's really weird that he does that. Oh my God, I didn't know that. <laughs> Jim Newell writes about golf and other things for Slate. Jim, thanks. Thank you guys. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for Afterballs. And there was one thing that I forgot to mention during our Bryson DeChambeau segment. And so I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity now. He strikes me as the most likely person in the universe to say, why aren't there sumo goalies in hockey? Like that seems like the total distillation of his uh, personality and interest in weight gain. Like he wants, he wants to take advantage of all weight gain related quirks and uh, sports rules. So Stefan, <laughs> um, before we, we started recording this uh, segment, I was like, did we ever mention the sumo goalie thing on, on this podcast before? And you said, Nah. And then I Googled, and it turns out there was the the Sumo Goalie edition of Hang Up and Listen <laughs> from uh, 2010. And then a couple weeks later, I did an afterball on the Zambonis song, Sumo Goalie. And so I don't want to give any repeats. Even after 10 years, I'm going to k- keep it fresh. And so um, the blog, hockey blog, Pension Plan Puppets, was going through a bunch of hockey rules. They mentioned the sumo goalie as the thing that people talk about. They mentioned the morbid obesity goalie also as a possibility, <laughs> but then one that I had never heard of before, mm-hmm. the Hydra goalie. Have all six players on one team lay atop one another or otherwise form some sort of phalanx <laughs> where their combined bodies block the total surface area of the net. Uh, this seems like it would require a team to sign a Cirque du Soleil troop, but let's go with it. And they say, so far as I can tell, this is legal. None of the defending players except the actual goalie can fall on the puck, pick it up, or gather it up in the crease, or it's a penalty shot. So I'm, sur- I'm sure Bryson DeChambeau mm-hmm. knows all about the NHL rulebook. I'm sure he wrote it all out longhand when he was in, in high school. But um, sumo goalie is out. Hydra goalie is in. Joel, what is your hydra goalie? My hydra goalie. So um, late Sunday night, Deion Sanders confirmed what sports news outlets have been reporting for the past few days that he's going to be the new head football coach at Jackson State University. Uh, He broke the news on the first episode of his new podcast, 21st in Prime. God called me to Jackson State, Dion said. It's an audacious move for an audacious guy, a very big swing for a small, historically black university. Some might even consider it a necessary move for Jackson State, which hasn't had a winning season since 2013 and hasn't won a league championship since 2007. At this point... Jackson State has been down for so long that college football fans likely don't know much about its legacy as a perennial power. Let's step back in history for a moment. From 1972 to 1996, Jackson State won 13 Southwestern Athletic Conference championships. That's more than half of the league titles over that 24-year span. 
The Tigers also won a Black College Football National Championship in 1996. Along the way, Jackson State produced much more than its fair share of college football legends, including Walter Payton and Jackie Slater. In fact, Jackson State has put four players into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, more than schools like Georgia, Florida, Texas, and as many as the other three FBS schools in Mississippi combined. And even in Jackson State's down years, which have been more plentiful as late, the school still regularly leads the FCS division in attendance, as it did last year. So yeah, the Tigers have some impressive history. The same can't be said for the program right now. So enter Dion, the Hall of Famer many consider the best cornerback in NFL history and one of the most distinctive personalities in the history of football. If Dion's talent made him a legend, his charisma made him an icon. When you see today's players high-stepping into the end zone or dancing their way onto the field or theatrically celebrating even the most mundane pass breakup, you're seeing the fruits of Dion's labor. To me, as a kid, Dion was one of the rare NFL players who seemed to celebrate football rather than merely endure it. Since retiring, Dion has largely kept up that persona on TV. He was most recently working for the NFL Network before signing a deal with Barstool Sports earlier this year, which is why he has a podcast now. So basically, the man once known as Neon Dion has never really left the spotlight since retiring in 2005. And surely Jackson State is counting on Dion bringing some of that spotlight with him to Mississippi. But it's worth considering if that's a good thing. First, we all know that the idea of the student-athlete is pure bullshit. It was a term coined by the NCAA in the 1950 to dodge a workers' compensation claim by the widow of a Fort Lewis A&M player. There's mostly just the pretense of players choosing and playing for schools because of academics. But even by that farcical standard, Dion's ambition to run a college football program is the height of hypocrisy. Back in 1989, his alma mater, Florida State, was forced to apologize after it came out that Dion didn't go to class his senior year and played in the Sugar Bowl despite receiving failing grades. In response, the state university system's Board of Regents enacted a regulation dubbed the Sanders Rule that forbids schools from allowing athletes to play in postseason games if they didn't attend class or failed to pass the minimum numbers of hours. The Sanders Rule. It's worth noting, however, that Dion, now 53 years old, finally completed his degree just a month ago, earning a diploma from a small HBCU in Alabama called Talladega College. But most telling, if not most damning, about Dion's approach to school was his disastrous tenure at Prime Prep Academy in Dallas. That charter school opened in 2012, billed as a prep academy for elite athletes. Dion said at the time, this would be wonderful if we would educate these kids. We could marry the two, sports and academics. Why can't we do such a thing? Long story short, Dion wasn't able to do such a thing. In a headline from February 2016, the Dallas Morning News summed it all up. The spectacular collapse of Deion Sanders' prime prep academy. Deion was the head football coach there long enough to get fired twice, the first time after a co-worker accused him of assault. He was reinstated soon after, but was fired a second time after losing a power struggle with the other school founders. Dion later pled no contest to the assault charge and paid a small fine. Prime Prep closed in 2015 amid reports of financial impropriety and poor academic scores. By that time, Dion had moved on to AAA Academy. That Dallas area school, too, eventually was forced to shut down in 2017 after years of failing to meet state academic standards. 
Deion was soon off to another local high school, Trinity Christian Cedar Hill. As the offensive coordinator there, Deion helped the program to back-to-back state championships in Texas's private school league. His son Shador was the quarterback. But predictably, things are ending on a bad note there, too. The Texas Association of Private and Parochial Schools placed Trinity's football team on probation during the 2017 season for eligibility violations and specifically reprimanded Sanders. Trinity left that league last season and has been competing as an independent this season. Think about it. Does that sound like the resume of a college football coach? Look, I know Jackson State is looking for a return to its former glory. I know this is ultimately about football and the big promise of Deion Sanders. But as the child of two HBCU graduates, shout out UAPB, I'd like to believe that those schools have a much different mission. They're the schools that wanted us when no one else did. They are still the most reliable path into the middle class for the majority of Black Americans. They are about building community, a sort of haven for Black students and professors and administrators in a world that too often overlooks all of them. It's a testament to Jackson State that fans still show up for the football games even though the football is no longer good, which is fine. It really doesn't have to be about the games. It's about something much more than that. Jackson State deserves someone who understands that and someone who cares. That person isn't Deion Sanders. I'm convinced. <laughs> uh, he's got a podcast. I mean, he, he should be busy enough. Yeah, I mean, the prime prep thing was a big story when it came out. And I wasn't aware of the, what happened with the other schools. But somebody with his resume, and it's not like any of the stuff was, was hidden, shouldn't be able to get a college coaching job anywhere. Yeah, but when God calls you to coach Jackson State, Josh... What are you going to do? You got to answer the call. Good luck to you, Jackson State. (laughs) (laughs) That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zamo Beatty and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 